Hello my friends and welcome to The Natural High which is a podcast dedicated to the pursuit of happiness in all its glorious forms. This week I have an at times almost incredible discussion with Viktor Rakovich. His work in e-commerce allows him to live in an eco-village at the base of Cayuga Lake in upstate New York. I describe most of my interviews as wide-ranging and this one certainly doesn't disappoint in terms of scope. During this wonderfully organic conversation, we start by talking about Victor's upbringing in Kazakhstan at a time when the country was striving for independence from the Soviet Union. We discuss the journey which brought him to America, which includes time in Alaska and a four-month stint in prison. And from there, we delve into more philosophical ideas and talk about the oneness, Rumi, Gandhi and Victor's interesting life in that eco-village. It's a quite fascinating conversation with a colourful journeyman who has so much to offer to the conversation about the human condition and the status quo. We even get an introduction to his avatar, which is an alternative persona which he likes to use from time to time. It is fascinating. You can find out more about Victor and get in touch with him by going to thenaturalhighclub.com forward slash Russia. And you can, of course, follow us on Twitter at Natural High Club. Enjoy the show. The Natural High. I love your studio. It looks absolutely amazing. Yeah, man. I like it too. Thank you. Set the scene for me a little bit. Where are you? In New Jersey at the moment? New York? I'm in New York, upstate New York. I'm in the Eco Village. Oh, man. We are so uh, going to come on to um, that. So, yes, it's, uh, it's my studio here at the Common House. Uh, there are three neighborhoods. Well, we'll get to it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, I want to go back from the start, really, because you're Russian, right? Yes. Yes, Russian heritage. I haven't done... I haven't done my DNA test, so nobody can really say who's who and where <laughs> Russian begins and not Russian and you know non-Russian ends and Russian begins. Uh, and I mean, if you go far enough back, it all began in Africa anyway, right? Exactly. So we have like, hopefully, maybe. Was it Africa before then? <laughs> <laughs> there was a stereotype about Russia that it is quite a hard place to live, and you know, of course, that's just a stereotype. I've I've never lived there, but I suppose that's sort of embodied by by your current leader, Vladimir Putin. I, mean, I don't know whether you'd associate him as your leader, but tell us about growing up in Russia. How long did you live there for before you moved to America? Yes, yeah, so that's, uh, I, I was born in Kazakhstan, uh, one of the Soviet republics. So at that time, Russia was really part of the Soviet Union. Uh, 70s, 80s, you know, my parents, my grandparents' time, it was a country called Soviet Union. And that's a funny thing. A uh, hundred years ago, you asked, you kind of asked me what would it be like for people to look back at a hundred years now and also looking forward a hundred years from now, the changes that are staggering. Like we can't almost remember what it was like, the reality was like the country does not exist that was back then. Mm. And not just the country that was then hundred years ago, there was an intermediary country, giant Soviet Union in that one year, hundred year span came into being and ceased to exist. Right. And we had a transformative time after that, all within a hundred years time. And countries changed, money changed, whole thing changed. Uh, and we can't, we, it's like we are ignoring like it ever happened. It's almost like it's not going to happen again, but it's happening right before our own eyes. What's happening specifically? It changes. It, it, uh, the evolution. Hmm. Evolution 
is because it's day-to-day -day so almost invisible, we don't recognize it as such. But it's happening on every scale, in every format, including countries and money and uh, systems and, uh, you know, internet and whatnot. Schools, everything is evolving. Organisms, you know, people, societies, communities, how people live, where they live, how they go to school, how do they go to shopping. All these things evolves, you know, energy, technology, everything. Um, does does Russia feel like a democratic place to you now when you go back there? And oh, you speak to no, no, far, far from democratic. I think it's an illusion. Uh, I don't think there's anybody is really, there's hardly anyone who believes that it's a democratic country. It has mm. some attributes, possibly. Uh, some. It has a potential um, to be a democratic country. It, it is not currently, democracy is a process. Democracy is a verb. Democracy lives, lives in a, in a practice of democracy, it's in it lives. So true. In actions, it's yep. a, democracy is a verb. I would say it's an action word. It does. It's not something that is just out there, out there somewhere that you could go out and find. Oh, I have democracy in my house, or like there's a democracy outside. Uh, no, it's it's how people act and how we respond and how things are happening in society on an action level. That's what mm -hmm. it constitutes. Whether we live in a democracy or not, how we practice it. Uh, and so I grew true. up in the Soviet Union times uh, before democracy was, you know, so I'm very familiar with what it was like. Soviet Union, I grew up in, in the 80s, and uh, that was the end of Soviet Union, but it was still pretty, pretty closed down country for everyone, and I did not know what it was like outside of the country. So it's sort of Gorbachev and, Gorbachev and Yeltsin sort of time. Yeah, right? definitely. Gorbachev, I remember Gorbachev very well, Perestroika. And he was like a popular figure around the world. He seemed like a good guy. He was. He had good intentions. Um, some people attribute bad intentions because during his time, also fall, falling apart happened. So people who were attached to the Soviet Union and had the idea that there was some kind of a entity, identity that they were uh, holding on to, and all of a sudden that's, that's crumbling, that's crushing down. Uh, it's attributed like a loss of something. It's attributed to destruction of something. So th something has to be destroyed or uh, fall apart in order for other thing to come into its place. And so Gorbachev, in many ways, was uh, a, a destructive set force as well, destructive for totalitarianism, right? So kind of uh, autocracy, uh, censor censorship. Mm -hmm. There was the end of censorship, so he destroyed, and dis there was some some destruction happening at the same time as other things were emerging. Uh, and so that's how you could look at things. There's always two, two sides. Of course, to the story. Uh, the, the the most annoying thing for me about Russia is it's sort of it, over time it's given communism a bad name, hasn't it? Because people look at you know certain epochs and eras in Russia and they say, oh look, that's communism. Look how communism doesn't work. But it's never really been a communism, has it? Most of the time, it's autocracy masquerading as communism. Communism, whatever you want to call it, it's always idea. It's one idea after another. Uh, you want to call it communism, socialism, right? But I like the idea of communism. I really like the idea of that. Well, it could be practiced in different ways. Uh, you know, there's some ideas of exactly. Uh, you know, in Jerusalem, in in Israel, you have kibbutz. You have some kind of form form formations that are somewhat on the community level. You have foundations of communism, so to speak. Right. Uh, you have uh, just up here, upstate New York, we've got 
Amish communities. Uh, they don't really personally much uh, own anything or they don't really, the ownership, proprietorship, like ownership of things is not important to them because the community owns it's For them, it's important what community owns, how strong the community is. Now, the communist, uh, communist kind of mindset is in the same way. You don't need individual property to the degree that you need to have a strong uh, community property. And I, in the Eco Village, where we live, is the same similar mindset in some ways. We don't need, everybody does not need a lawnmower uh, and own a lawnmower and loan each shovel. We have 100 households. We don't need 100 lawnmowers to loan my It's own. just practical. It's just common sense. It's just practical. We don't, everybody doesn't need 100 washers and 100 dryers or even double that for each yeah. household. We could use community ones. It was, it's more efficient way, this way for many reasons. Uh, if we understood that as a society, how to operate. But at the same time, do you really want to kind of undermine individuality? And if somebody striving to have private... Is that individuality, though, or is that just materialism? Well, it depends for who. It depends how you name it. Uh, and it depends from whose perspective. Really, it's all about perspective. Somebody is ha does have entrepreneurial mindset, and they want to build things, and they want to make sure that they things that they built will uh, that they can hold on to. And th there was a big problem because nobody owned anything. Theft was all over the place. Whole country. That's how Soviet Union fell apart. I think for just decades, everything was just been stolen and stolen because if everybody owns it, nobody owns it. Right. There's really a no one who is the owner. Mm. It's an entity, a country, like a government, or like Soviet Union owns this village. Soviet Union owns this uh, uh, library or the, the roads and the things and the uh, steel and all the resources. So if there's Soviet Union is out there that owns it, there's no one really out there who's going to come and demand it because it's local. Locals are kind of manipulating somewhat uh, the resources. So without solid rights of ownership and oversight, uh, things fall apart because there's no oversight, there's no, how do you develop in efficient infrastructure if nobody owns right. it, there's no one who's responsible for yeah, it. How do you have mm. in pro property and how do you have progress, not progress, but uh, innovation. For innovation, to be as innovative as Elon Musk or like, imagine Elon Musk trying to innovate under Soviet Union conditions. It's, it would be impossible. There's no grasp. Like, you can't, on a short, short, span of, short span of time, that kind of innovation is only possible, or like, you know, Mac, uh, Apple story, things like that. Uh, I think these stories are only possible under somewhat a hybrid. At least it has to be a hybrid, or capitalism has to have a kind of different face, or maybe the same face. I don't know. Mm. Uh, but there are certain things work in certain environments yeah. uh, that I know. Yeah. Uh, certain things work under certain environments. Mm. They were able to, uh, you, you can't just, Soviet Union had this central central uh, zone, basically, it's a central uh, area of how, they've, uh, how they were manipulating and uh, distributing resources around the vast country. There would be coal mining coal from one country in Kazakhstan, for example, and growing potatoes in in another republic. And they would just instead of growing potatoes where you're grazing coal, like some of the energy resources, they would have these massive plants for the entire land of this. And it wasn't sustainable. 
uh, to operate this way either. You can't just uh, centrally say, this plant will produce tables for the entire country or chairs or spoons, and that was, that's how it was like. One plant would be just like, we're going to be massive producing spoons for the entire country. An entire Soviet Union had the same kind of spoon. Wow. Can you imagine? <laughs> you could find the same spoon that mixed in, in Ukraine, in Kazakhstan, and they're all like Soviet Union by, made by the same stamp, by the same you know, standard <laughs> in, one, in one factory. Now the idea is cool, but you're saying that in practice they were, it was more complicated, didn't work. as Yeah, very complicated, very... Uh, inefficient too mm. uh, in many ways because of transportation and then you don't have uh, it's very unsustainable and diversity is not there uh, you need in nature I think you need diversity in general and if you want to have imitate natural processes you want to have diversity in some kind of natural process of, of survival of uh, built into this kind of things it has to be vetting process there has to be uh, some kind of competition at least some some, some level uh, it's like in nature. Absolutely fascinating, everything you're saying. Were you around when tensions were happening between this old Soviet Union and Kazakhstan? Did you experience any of that? When did that happen? Uh, in the 90s. In the 90s. Lots of happened in the, 90s, in the 90s. And of course, the financial crisis was the biggest one because the money fell apart. The whole thing, most people don't, don't know. Almost overnight, the money that were in the Soviet Union came became non-existent, had no value. Loads of inflation and Loads stuff. of inflation, uh, not just the inflation, Kazakhstan's and other republics did not even have a money or central banks or any idea how to run it, how to create their own money. Uh, so there was a big gap. Uh, so in, why was there such uh, a desire to separate then? And so nationalities, so because Russians took over a lot of administrative positions in, in, the, in the countries like Kazakhstan and Belarus and Ukraine, uh, Uzbekistan, everywhere, uh, where nationals would be pushed over to the sides and uh, Russians would run and operate the country and the resources and everything. So when uh, Soviet Union fell apart, nationals came to the front and say, this is kind of like, we're going to start taking over. The languages first started to, to change. Kazakh language is different from Russian. Ukrainian languages, they started changing uh, everything and like, you know, if, when the country language, state language changes, you have a you have a situation if you don't speak that language or write it. All forms and everything's on paper. You know, at that times, of course, no internet, so everything's printed in Kazakhstan. All the things you have to fill out. You go to the hospital. You go to the school. You go to there and this and Russian Kazakh language is everywhere. Also, Russians who were in the positions of any kind of power or administration had to move, uh, like had to give up those positions, and they didn't have something relevant you know equal to fall back into so they would and they saw a little opportunity for their children too like what where are they going to children will grow up in environment where you have people from the villages coming to the cities and start starting to you know one day they were kind of like they're running a farm goat farm or sheep farm and then they're starting to operate uh i don't know uh administration uh administrative tasks yeah um so that's when tension started and that's when my my parents moved out um to russia and i was at that time I, it was kind of funny situation for me i i came to the united states as an exchange student from kazakhstan to kentucky wow and that was a, a little shock that was a little shock from one 
kind of boondocks to another. <laughs> was there a big desire to come to America and why was that? Very exotic, very exo idea was exotic in general. Very few people knew uh, about America, only remotely. We didn't think we knew about America by watching American movies, of course. Uh, so that was... But that, that's got to enter the subconscious, hasn't it? I mean, it, it's it, all these movies that I was watching in the 80s they were about America and by America was so aspirational. It was all about this perfect lifestyle, wasn't it? They did it well. They did those things well. They, yeah. they created the mindset <laughs> around the world. Um, all these movies came around, proliferated the culture, uh, changed the mindset, and it was, it was wonderful. And uh, I had a chance to come as an exchange student uh, took me like six months to adjust and acclimate. Yeah. Did you have any family here at all? No. Wow. So you were literally on your own. I was, was I had a host family. So I had a family that hosted uh, me uh, for, for a year, school year. It was a program sponsored by the United States government. Wise things Americans did too around the world to make sure that they have friends. Wow, yeah. They, they make sure that because everything, everything's in transition, and I kind of looked at this, uh, the communications, the what they've done on a, on, a, on a scale, trying to negotiate with Russians and politicians and all about what, what needs to happen. Because they, they knew things are going to hit the fan, and they said, uh, we would like to have them as friends, as our enemies, at least. Right. So they've, and especially younger generation when they were growing up, they're like, we want them to be, to grow up as many people growing up knowing and liking the United States. Uh, so they've- That's such a healthy idea, isn't it? A healthy idea, right. You want to have people have a good impression of you. Image yeah. is everything. And <laughs> so I was one of the uh, people who was lucky enough to sponsor by United States government, you know, uh, embassies around the world. They invited, you know, uh, former Soviet Union students to come to and study United States American high schools and then we're supposed to go back a year later so we would kind of bring that experience bring that knowledge and tell people what we did and that's how we, kind of we did we had to like everybody was asking questions what it was like it must have been such a culture shock to go to Kentucky from from Russia huge culture shock <laughs> it was language shock most of all I think and with that of course culture shock I had no idea Going to Kentucky, yes, it was wonderful. I had a wonderful, generous family that was nice. hosting me. And uh, we're still friends on Facebook. I love seeing wow. their updates. And uh, so it's, some, some things happened too that taught me, uh, you know, how to stand up for myself also. Like those things were a lot more rough. And I saw the individuality from the perspective of American kids. Like, wow, you really have to, you're on your own and you're in the jungle. So there's a lot more. Uh, verbal abuse, I think, was was more of a uh, kind of you could say anything to anyone. Like I think American cultures, like linguistically and on the language, you could say things to people that you that that are just not acceptable uh, in in Russian like, culture. No, not not acceptable in other cultures. They're so like they are. You kind of like if you say those things, you really have to own up to those kind of words. Like you're gonna have serious. Like there's gonna be someone's gonna stand up and like. But there was like I noticed. No one's really punching anybody else until when they even tell him to f off or like things like that are kind of okay to just kind of have verbal abusive conversation and then everybody just goes out, goes away there on the corners. Mm. I was I thought it was kind of weird. I thought it was like spoken word has so much power to me mm. <laughs> that I thought they don't uh, American kids didn't have that much 
respect the thing, who are owning, honoring their words, even right. uh, honoring what they were saying, mm. uh, because that's your like stand up as what <laughs> to what you're saying. Right. Yeah. Sure. Talk. Talk the walk. Nobody really wanted to walk the talk. Everybody just wanted to talk a lot and show this big chest and like stand up and like say what's up. You know how. <laughs> yeah. Kind of show, show their bravado, but bravado didn't go very far. In Russia, it would have been, and bravados would just meet with their. You would know the. <laughs> they would know a lot of kids would know their own strength very quickly right. <laughs> which means they would meet with their destiny wow. <laughs> very fast if they were all of a sudden an exchange student so, Kazakhstan. so it so it would be so it would be sort of quite so so it was quite tough then in some respects in in kazakhstan growing up yes definitely yeah for sure uh, there was there were moments where you had to um yeah there's like fight or fright you have you testing it's everything's like you you see your limits all of a sudden like where you are tested as a character and how it shapes you uh, later on. Well, certainly in England, we were taught loads about Russia when we were growing up, you know, because it had such a crazy history. You know, we're talking about the purges at the start of the last century and, and then the Second World War. You know, I don't think a lot of people know that in the Second World War, Russia lost millions more um, to the Second World War than any other country. Do you think that shaped yours and your countrymen's psyche and made it quite, you know, made you quite resilient and tough? Dramatic losses, absolutely. Toughness is there, but there's also a lot of separation. Unfortunately, what happens in this kind of instances, there's a good understanding of there's us and there's them. There's all of us here and there's everybody else is there. And there's the rest of the world, there's neighbors and there's, uh, there's ally, allies and there's other countries, but they're them, they're not us. So there's quite, uh, there's, there's nationalism comes in. Our nation, us, and there's everybody else, them. And the stronger the divide is, the harder it is to come close with other people on many levels. Um, it, vulnerability is not there. Like there's national tensions on, on many levels. There's like, you don't trust people. And even in, in major uh, negotiations, like there's the Russians would just, Soviets would just lie in the negotiations about what they had, how much they've done, how much, and they would just, Americans would try to negotiate on that end. That, um, that brings me to kind of uh, understanding where we are now. Even that shapes national policies and international policies. That's how Putin is acting, I think, and a lot of times that's how it has, uh, he has the support. Even the, one of the parties, like politician, political parties are called our party. In Russian? How do you say that in Russian? Nashik. Uh, so there's uh, uh, so it's that whole sort of I wouldn't say I don't want to say propaganda, but like you know sort of PR to sort of you know bring everybody together and make everybody feel that sort of us versus them. Us versus them for sure, right? Definitely, and that that creates an idea of identity, which is it's not wrong, but it's it's a, it has its cost. Uh, idea of ident identification with I'm Russian and they're not. So we're better and in some ways and we have to protect ourselves and there's border right here and there's so you've got this divide uh, that's hard to bridge. And it's, 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 it's burnt into culture with jokes. It's burnt into culture with narrative, um, terrible jokes, national jokes that you would never- Propaganda. Not just propaganda. Uh, KGB would have resources to make jokes that would be funny 
literally, like they'll be really funny, but they'll be nationalistic jokes to kind of proliferate the idea that through culture, very subtly, all of a sudden, and then people drink and people party, and they, what do you have at the table? And you have this big laugh about how there's English and there's Russians and there's uh, Jewish, and then there's like all these people get together, and there's something happens, and the Russian guy is all of a sudden like uh, made a joke of everyone else. Uh, and it's sort of presented like as it as if it's just a joke and it's just healthy, but actually there's a subtext there which is quite dangerous. Huge subtext. Mm. Like one is stupid, the other one is greedy uh, in the joke, right? The other one is like uh, selfish, but the Russians are witty and they are like, <laughs> and they're gonna just they're strong and then they're so so and the light, you know, uh, and the light is just they're lucky because they're they're fortunate or some kind of like the the wittiness which just gets them through their trouble or whatever. Uh, and now we've got Donald Trump in America doing the same sort of thing. It must resonate with you. I mean, he's not even trying to do it subtly, is he, really? I don't know what he's doing. <laughs> uh, what he's... It's hard to... Well, I think he's trying to engender that same sense of nationalism, isn't he? Us versus them. I think there's. I think he's actually quite good friends with, with Vladimir, and I think, they're, um, I think he admires him. I was listening to an interview just the other day uh, where he was being grilled about Russia and, you know, things that have gone on, on with Russia that have been well publicized over the last couple of years. And he was saying, let's not talk about Russia. Why are we, why are we always talking about Russia? Let's talk about China. You know, China's now his pet hate. Exactly. So you need China. There's them right there. So there's another them who we need to uh, focus on. And there's, again, separation and divide, even though, I don't know. But so, yes, that comes to identity. He plays this card well for sure. Uh, there's got to be a strong idea of identity. Uh, whenever you try to create a conflict or create a uh, some kind of a divide or, because it's so easy, then you attach, you know, there's so many things that they could go down, you know, there's our interests, there's them, there's how we interact with them, what they've done to us and what's right, what's wrong. And then you've got endless conflict after, after that. All right. And so you stayed in Kentucky for, you studied in Kentucky for a year. And I, despite, you know, it be obviously being difficult for a young lad, leaving everything that he knows and going to a place where it sounds as if, you know, it wasn't always just plain sailing. There were some, some quite intimidating moments. But overall, you must have been quite taken by, by the place because you're still here now. I came back. Okay. I'm not still here. I went back to go to university. So I went back for one year and then I went back. I went to study to Russian in the study in the Russian university. At that time, my parents moved from Kazakhstan to Russia. So I, I went from Kazakhstan to US, but from the US, I kind wow. of went to Russia, mm -hmm. not Kazakhstan. And I went to university there. Um, and that's, I studied linguistics. I studied um, business, uh, economics. That's what I was majoring in. And then when I kind of already more grown up and seeing into other opportunities, I thought, yes, there's not much of a interest for me here at the time. And I thought uh, it'd be more, I'd have more opportunity if I come and explore things in the U.S., especially, you know, I thought I had some experience and, uh, and my English was more fluent than my other comrades. I, I explored that idea. I went to. How? What year was that? Uh, in 2000. Oh wow! I went, okay. I went to Alaska and I worked in uh, Kodiak Island in Alaska for for summer and more, like six months or so. Why? And I went to. Uh, that was a money project. Uh, it was a job that was offered, so I thought 
if I was. Is it quite a famous resort or something? I've never heard of it. It's a fish catching resort. Yes. Okay. <laughs> you go. Okay. It's only open for summertime, and you go and you skin fish. <laughs> pretty oh my much. God. It's a cannery. But a beautiful part of the world, I imagine. Beautiful part of the world. It's it's incredible experience. I've never thought I'd, I'd see it, but then you go. It, it, culture shock too, because you go in there and you see Elliot's and uh, Nationals on Kodiak Island in Alaska, and some of them have Russian names, and there's right. some ancient like 200 or 300 year old church that's like beat up and old, but it was a so you know Russian old church uh, that was there, and there's some Russian names that are still there. Uh, it's a landmass which joins the two the two continents, isn't it? Yes, yeah, and it was sold, you know, Russian owned it, and then they sold it to the U.S., and it's another story of Alaska, what happened there, how you can sell and buy land, and all of a sudden, another country owns it, uh, and then again, so people who lived there this whole time before it was even Russia, they kind of go through this transition as, a, as like just residents, as like almost like animals that live on the forest and you buy the land and then you sell, you know, you buy the land with animals on it and all the life that's on the land uh, that's considered your property. It's kind of natives are the same way. Wow. I, I think idea. Yeah. And there's a dramatic, mm. there's troublesome situations in Alaska and especially with natives with what the United States government has done there and uh, alcohol addictions and family abuse and all these things that are happening there is just very traumatizing. I, I had no idea what I was going to see there. I thought it was kind of weird wow. because all there is was really operations, commercial operations by the American, you know, companies, big companies. They wanted to use the resources of land and the fish and all that. But people who lived there, they had nothing. There's no way to get out of the, even of the island except a little airplane. Were they able to subsist before the Americans came along with their big business? Oh, sure. But they were now they, they are dependent uh, right. because right now they have no way to there's culturally there's no they don't have tools. They don't have that that education that happens father to son has ceased to exist. And now they have they only dependent on their check that comes from the government and they've lost all of their ways, uh, literally. So they, it's, it's a boring and it's a boring place to be once you have nothing happening on the winter, long winter nights and long winter season. Uh, things go down, you know, things, terrible things could happen and there's domestic abuse and crazy stuff. Yeah, sounds awful, Not but funny. in the summer, in the summer when you went up there for work, there probably were a lot of people like you there, right? Oh, that was great, yeah, so we had a lot of people from, at that year they brought a lot of exchange students and exchange workers, I guess, from different places, so that was a fun, fun experience. And from there I went to Idaho, because I the person I met in the cannery in Alaska invited me to work. I was a roofer because I had some English skills and they pulled me off from the fishing line to as a carpenter. Now I all of a sudden was uh, doing more fun things Mad. when everybody was just standing in line uh, dressed in their overalls and like fish suit, you know, <laughs> oh, fish processing. I was no longer a fish processor and I was, um, it was a fun project and that's where I, I went to Idaho and I met my wife there. Uh, and shortly after, we, uh, my other friends, uh, at the same time, from Russia, from Russian University, kind of came to other places in the country in the United States to work summer jobs. And some of them uh, continued to work other jobs. And they, uh, 
some of them have applied for asylum at the time. Um, some of them went back, but I, all of a sudden, how I did, could they apply for asylum because of sort of civil unrest or yes, unrest in their country? There was so. right. There was nationals. There was a lot of national tensions. Uh, Jewish at that time, if you had Jewish heritage, were Jewish were prosecuted. So if somebody was had a Jewish heritage and they could prove that they had troubles, and they did, family, Jewish families have had troubles in Russia and the Soviet Union, of course, and uh, Belarus as well. Uh, as you know, Lukashenko just had another wave of uh, election, sort of staged election there. It's still happening. Uh, major uh, lockdown in the country and uh, no liberty at all. And uh, in prosecution as well, even for the, and I was I was a Russian in Kazakhstan, so I, I, I tried to um, stay as well. And uh, I married, uh, at that time I married the uh, girl that I met in Idaho in 2001. American and, girl, right? American girl, yes. And even with that, I had still trouble uh, with the immigration. <laughs> Why? So I, uh, it was a it was a long immigration story, right? I had my case. Was it as strict then as it is now? It's it's just that I had a uh, mistake in my case. Uh, my so to speak lawyer. I, I hired somebody who was recommended to me by a friend. And when you're so young, and I was like, I didn't know how to do. It, and I instead of hiring a lawyer, I hired somebody who told me that they were a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> and they filed a case, and they took my money. And then, whenever the response on my case came. I never saw that response, and I was supposed to be show up in, in, in front of the judge yeah. at a certain day and time. And if you don't show up, you have a deportation, order of deportation uh, in your abs in absentia. Oh Basically, God. in your absence, you automatically get that on your case, and that's something that you cannot easily remove. So once you have, once I re realized and I found out that I had order of deportation and being deported, I, I lived under that order for many years, and I tried to appeal my case and then appeal it again, even already at, at that time with two kids uh, and the wife, American wife and two children, I was arrested and I spent four months in an immigration jail. Oh my God, that is a shocker. So that was another cultural experience. What year was that? <laughs> 2008. 2008, and so where was this immigration jail? Uh, New Jersey. I lived in New Jersey at the time, yes. Oh my God, what was it they like? I can imagine the conditions were pretty bad. Uh, could be bad, uh, could be worse, I think. There's a big room with four, 40 plus men, uh, all the metal beds kind of bolted into the uh, floor, concrete floor. You know, it's a cell, it's a big cell. Uh, it's, it's hard, but I think it was a lot harder for a lot of other people. For some reason, I was already in the mindset, uh, kind of, I knew my situation was uncertain. And I kind of like, I took personal development um, courses and kind of like, I took on my, my own state of mind and my own state of being into my own hands at the time. I didn't want to just kind of drift off as a football of circumstances in life. And I thought, hey, I need, and it was good timing. Uh, so when I got there, I was like, hey, this is great. I, I, I've never had so much free time in my hands and I could <laughs> sit and just meditate and I read things that I needed to read that I'd never read because I've, all of a sudden, all these things that came to my mind, like people have done amazing things in jails because they have so much time. Mm. Uh, 
written books and, and blah, blah, blah. read books and, and educate themselves and kind of like there's never another another chance that you'll have, probably somebody will ever have because I can't possibly go in a cave. I had two children. I had responsibilities. That's all about your state of mind, basically, isn't it? Yeah, I had two. I had business or two businesses at, at that time that kept me incredibly busy and a family with two children. Were you able to do that? You weren't able to do any of those um, affairs from him. Did you have any contact with the outside world? I had contacts, right. I had contact, a uh, phone, and a way to write a letter, and that's how I operated. Um, but they couldn't deport me. It was a good thing that I was able to um, manage that and did not get deported. To, to, they tried to report me to Russia and to Kazakhstan, both, both countries. See, it's the way that like the countries uh, Southern American countries, they just put them in the right. bus and they ship them. Deport them back to the country. Uh, that way. And, and, and deport them in big numbers, right? It's just mm -hmm. like a steady flow. But to send somebody back to China or to Russia, uh, countries like that where U.S. has troublesome relationship. It's not a clear uh, relationship between the two countries. The country has to accept the citizen that you're sending back. And if I already lived here for too long and if I have no even right. passport at that time, Russian passport expired. Uh, I have no place, no status, no school, no work, no job. I have, in fact, I have a Russian family and a Russian house, uh, American family, an American house, an American wife, and American children. They're not too keen to like taking me back and say, yeah, this is our Russian citizen. Let me send him back with all of his family. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Russians didn't do that. <laughs> and so they couldn't deport me um, and they, they had, at that time, Obama passed a law that after four months, they had to let immigrants, if you can deport an immigrant, don't keep them in, in jail. I think that was a smart thing to do because we all pay for those, for the incarceration, incarceration, we all pay for those meals, for that housing, for all the services that are provided uh, for every person in, in jail. You have to pay uh, for it. Tax Tax, taxpayers do. No, oh, taxpayers see, do. Okay, we all do as taxpayers. So for taxpayers' interest, if you can't deport the person, don't keep them in jail anymore. Mm. Get them out. Let them out. If they have a place to stay and they're safe and they've already checked the ground, you know, my background and they knew I had a job and a business and a house and a family. Yeah, you're, you're set up. Respectable guy. You're a respectable guy. Let, you know, I had to check in every month. Uh, it was like a parole thing, wow. but at, the, at this time I already had a certain, and I was still, oh, this whole time while I was arrested and tried to deport me, at that whole time I still have my case in appeal, and the court of appeals, uh, all things happening at the same time. Very bizarre things how all this works. Did you feel a lot of anxiety at that time, or did you feel that you were in a far less desperate situation than some of the other people because of your roots in America, because of your family here and stuff? No, I don't think I've, I've had any anxiety, really. Being comfortable with uncomfortable was like my mantra. Like, I really wanted to. Can't have, anxiety would have not been good for me, no. It's just really being present and learning how to stay present for moment by moment. And I, uh, and that paid off. That really was helpful. I was able not just help myself, but other people in the cell, too. So many men were like, I saw people it devastated. Oh, my God. And I, I really try to have conversation, built them out and disengage them from their mindset where they were like world collapsing. Yeah. Uh, they were being pulled apart from their families. Uh, they didn't know where they were doing, what was happening. A lot of people, trauma. Uh, and people stayed in the trauma uh, for a long time and I tried to help them as best they could.
Were people friendly with each other in general? I mean, you were obviously being very, very friendly with other people, but it was quite a civilized place. It wasn't like a like a proper jail. Yeah, it was. It was civilized. It was. It was okay. Everybody. Everybody had a common problem. Basically, there was a common strand that everybody felt that you know, they were all in the same boat. Together. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, there were some groups of people that were like you know more close than other groups. There were language groups, yeah. of course. People from all over the world, I'm guessing. From all over the world, right? And it was a fun way to meet too. Like, I love your attitude. I love your positive attitude. <laughs> Where else are we gonna go? And I could sit down with him, and like he was going back to India to be a saint, and then all of a sudden he gets arrested at a, at an airport because he doesn't have a passport. Now he's in jail. He's like, send me back. He's like, no, no, no. There's a process to send you back. It's not that easy. The bureaucratic machine. He's now inside of all that machine, right? He's like, he's wow. ready to go back and be a saint and walk uh, barefoot. Uh, and now. <laughs> Mad. No, not, not do you together. still have any friends from back then? Do you have any friends still? I do. I, still I'm made? friends with some people on Facebook right now. Yeah. They're... So how did it end up then? How did it? How did the, the situation sort itself out? I, I, they let me out, and I was able to. Uh, now I'm a citizen. <laughs> hmm. I got my green Finally. card shortly after. I got my green card, and then a couple years later, I became a citizen. Wow. Step by step process, and all of a sudden, writing letters. It was helpful to. Uh, I took landmark courses at that time. I don't know if I'm really if you landmark education. Uh, is a, these are sort of self kind of self self empowerment courses mm -hmm. and, and uh, education that you could take that really sets your mindset. You could communicate clearly. Uh, it's called landmark education. Landmark education, right? The wonderful courses that they do on communication and uh, and breaking down barriers and that we have for ourselves and the whole thing we construct in language it relates it, it helps you separate what you build in language and you really have in reality <laughs> uh, so you tell stories we tell stories to ourselves and we believe they're very like they're solid and real and there's just internal a, dialogue internal dialogue but also opinions and 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 judgments they're like solid and then they collapse the two we're almost like Oh, this happened. Like they put me in jail. Oh, they like they're horrible. You know? No, they just did their job. <laughs> yep. No, but I mean that life is just a state of mind, isn't it? It's all about your outlook. I, I think that your circumstances, you know, you, you can't necessarily have a lot of control of those, but you can always control your outlook. I don't know if I'd be able to control my outlook in such a positive way, given that situation, because it sounds pretty awful to be honest. But it sounds like you came out of it an even better, better, round, more rounded person and more educated much better i'm very grateful i totally i i kind of and without that incident in fact it was a good thing i knew that it was going to be it had to happen because in that instant in that instance it helped me to open up a new kind of dialogue with the immigration authorities now now that they've already been captured and put in jail and they couldn't deport me now that they have to like override the original ruling of trying to deport and then say even instead of reopening my case and try to process, there's a, there's a case, uh, there's a uh, change of status that you can do. And I would change my status from wherever that was illegal to try to um, uh, forget the form, but it's, it's when a family member uh, petitions for another family member and there's a unification of family, mm -hmm. right? We kind of override that as well. And it was just, uh, naturalization process for me uh, after that and that you know that 
if we, without, without being in jail and without the whole process of trying to you know, deportation, that, that other step would not have been possible. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of a link to the better future that had to happen for me to kind of slide to the next level and then but again, I mean, you've seen it as a positive. Right. A lot of people wouldn't, and I, I really respect that state, that um, that outlook. I think having a positive outlook is so so important in your life because it, it really dictates to to the circumstances in your life as well. But it's funny, isn't it? I mean, I don't know if what it's like anywhere else in the world. I have applied for sort of short term visas in other places, but I'm currently applying for my green card. And it's not like, I mean, it is such a big bureaucratic machine. It's not like you can just call somebody up and go, "I've got this problem with my with my application. I just wonder if you could sort it out for me." And you have, you know, somebody on the other end of the line go yeah hold on a second i'll sort it out for you it's not like that at <laughs> all is it it's like oh. nebulous it's vague you can wait for years and you have no idea whether you're going to get it or not it's true and it, it makes you study i had yeah. to own my own case and i finally realized i really need to get serious about it myself and my lawyer too after write, me writing things and getting it in he's like man come work for me my immigration attorney said, no you need way. to come work with me. I have so many cases that you can help because I consult other people. Like they call me and say, anybody who's got my case is this thick, like layers and layers of all the writings and responses and appeals that I had to write. And it was just like massive amount of experience. Wow. Um, so you actually had the experience to, to help others. It sounds like a sort of Shawshank redemption case. I know you were out of immigration jail at that point in time. But uh, yeah, that, that's amazing. And as you say, you know, what doesn't uh, kill you makes you stronger, I suppose. Good. Kazakhstan, Russia and America, you must feel sort of quite, dis not displaced, but you've been a nomad in your life. Where, where is home now? Does America really feel like home? America isn't... <laughs> America. <laughs> What's America? America <laughs> is is a noun, right? There's not really any America out there. You look at New York, you look at Texas, which one is America? Which one is California? Is California America or, or is, is, uh, is Denver? Or like, you know, which, which laws? And then you have dramatic laws and the legalities of certain things in different places. Like which exactly part is America for what America is like? So, uh, that helps me to see the way and beyond the borders of the states uh, from state to New Jersey to Texas to California to the borders beyond borders of the United States Russia like I don't consider myself and the same idea as rationale rationality you could say Russian <laughs> nationality or American um, it's it's an it's an idea and how real is an idea do I really relate to it as a serious label? Do you think America gets a bad, bad rep from um, the rest of the world? Because I, I think a lot of the time people don't separate the, the leadership, the establishment from the people of America. They just see it. They just they just put it all lump it all in together. They don't. And say America, it's shit. Of course not. No, they do. They, of course they do it. They have to. That's how mind works. Mind will clinch to anything that of that nature that you could, you know, label something, describe it, point your finger, and they could say an opinion on it, and that's it. That's your pleasure, like for your mind, there's nothing more pleasurable that you've defined something that you've separated yeah. from yourself as that is this, and I'm here, and that is over there, and that's how it is. It's a nice, tidy little box it's in a, the corner. You've described it, that's it. Yeah, you've categorized it in many ways, like all this thing is now rightly that. that on your package on your shelf and uh, with the name tag shit on it um 
Yeah, totally. My experiences of being in America, I've only been here for three years, but I found people to be extremely welcoming wherever I've been. I've driven across the whole country and everybody was friendly and welcoming. I felt safe. Um, people are open here and they just have quite a bright disposition in general. Uh, of course, there are, there, are, there are lots of issues as well, but they tend to be more on a governmental level. I've also experienced racism, but so no, no worse than anything that I've experienced in Europe. Yeah, it's true. It's all, it's all experience. And uh, if, we could, if we could recognize our experiences for what they are and separate opinions so much, so much that we put in there as really negatory, just like narration and narration, narration. We live in the narration as a reality, unfortunately, instead of like really looking deeper beyond what we call things, what we call America, what we call, you know, Russians call them Americose. It's just general Americans, they call them with the derogatory kind of suffix. Right. Uh, just to kind of play a joke, like add another meaning to the name American. Uh, there you have some kind of a suffix to it. Uh, which is another another way to add attach another little tiny label ish to the label. Yeah, <laughs> not just a label, but it's a label with a sticker on it. Mm. Yeah, I mean, even my even some of the more sort of intellectual newspapers, uh, the news outlets in England that I read, that I regularly read still, they still describe America in in overly simplistic terms, as far as I'm concerned. They have, yeah, they have to put their name on something, and again, it, I think it matters what who the writer is and what they're trying to what their their background and what they're thinking from uh, their disposition and their outlook and what they're trying to everything's going to be a, some kind of opinion is going to drive one thing or the other that's it's kind of hard to see through through that morass <clears throat> that vague of reality vague of ignorance and that's that's what it is really it's just it's just layers of layers of ignorance ignorance about Ignorance, not not just stupidity. Like I mean, like you don't know the facts. Not ignorance in the in the terms of intelligence. You could be very intelligent and know many facts about things, uh, but you could be quite ignorant about nature of things. You could you still separate America from its past, you know, of what's today, or like the history of how it interchanged with all the other communications that happened and what what shaped the country and and the states and every leader and how things came to be because it's not, not one event is separated from another event. Because it's all a consecutive, there was never a time that separated from something else. It's all one linear of time. Right now, America is not separated from yesterday, America. It's just from 80s and 70s, how it's shaped. You see, it's it's really hard to, but we are humans, we're attached to things to like, we, we, gotta, we gotta name it now and we gotta label it now. And our minds, I just vicious engines. As you say, there is a huge diversity in terms of, you know, different places in America. And it sounds like you're living in a quite a distinctive place yourself. How did you come across the eco village that you're living in now? Please tell me all about that. Uh, so I lived in the, in New Jersey at the time, outside of New York City. And we had a flood. I, so we had two years of major hurricanes, Hurricane Irene and Hurricane Sandy. Uh, seen around the world, the devastating uh, impacts that happened around uh, East Coast and New York City. Um, Lower Manhattan was flooded. New Jersey was flooded. And uh, my business... Sorry, what year was this? Remind me. 2013 or 12. 
um, something like that, 1312. Uh, and our business place was completely flooded twice. The river went up the banks, was flooded one time, we started cleaning up, and the next day the water banks came up again and flooded the whole shop again. So millions of losses for everybody. We lost a lot of property. Damage was just indescribable. Everything was damaged. I was in the wood flooring business at the time. Machines, wood floors, everything sets on the ground. You know, you have the machines, you're sending machines, equipment, all these things. Uh, unexpected, but everything was flooded. Uh, my house, thankfully, was not, but so many other houses were flooded. And there was uh, no power for many days. Difficult situation. I, I saw people siphoning gas from another car to just stealing gas from another. It was weird things. And so, breakup. So, what, what happened with kind of you saw looting uh, uh, with during the recent times in, in Manhattan and some things of nat that nature. I thought was be was going to be possible if it just we had no electricity for one more day. I thought there was going to be some something like that. People were just going to go in the streets. And we didn't know when the electricity was going to come back, if we're going to have food, how they're going to deliver the food or clean water. So I thought, and I had two kids at the time, and I saw how fragile the whole system was. Even though we're so resilient and we're so, so strong when it's all working, but when it's not working, it gets really bad really fast. It's very like, fragile, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. It's very fragile. We're human bodies in general, but our society is also very fragile. You don't have electricity, all of a sudden everything falls apart. How you take your everything, every little thing that the you look at. The supply chain as well. I, I, the supply chain, chain, everything, right? Stores, you can't communicate, you can't order anything, you can't respond. Uh, you know, things just like collapsing all around you. And I saw we were unsustainable, and I saw how unsustainable I was. I had no electricity backup, I had no food backup, I had no water backup, and all of a sudden I'm trying to raise my family. Like, wow. what plans? How good are, my, are the plans that I'm making for my family if I can't even create any kind of security for of that nature? When it's like thing comes in and very natural process, like hurricanes are natural. Yeah. There's no, like they come around and they will be coming again. But we've, we've got into will... this mindset, most of us in America, in the world, that we're not self-sufficient anymore, are we? We're not, I mean, I'm not practical in any way. I could not build anything because I don't ever need to. <laughs> right. Well, that's, 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 you can come visit and you can see how other communities are set up and there's ways to put those in place slowly, little by little. And I realized these are kind of steps I could take. And I was, and I went to research alternative ways of living and I saw eco-villages and I all of a sudden the idea of the eco-village came into my mind this around this time and I was like wow that's really fantastic how people could uh, raise their families uh, in this new environment where you don't have even car traffic inside of the community you don't have to because I had to like walk my children by hand to the park and walk them in the park like dogs it's literally exactly the same. If you have a dog and you walk your park in the dog, you walk you walk your dog in the park. Walking children is just like that. Only they're running um, because you have traffic and you, you can't just let them out. Here in the eco village, you really can. You open the door and they. During COVID times, there's some social distancing involved, but in the normal times, there's a lot more freedom. How big is the space in your specific eco village? We have 170. 
two acres or hammers. So that's not inside a city then? That's also, well, it's all, it's in town, right? It's outside of Ithaca town, uh, Ithaca city, but everything is like within a 10, 15 minute drive from me. So I'm just outside of city on the hill, but we are very close to everything. So it's not, we have huge miles and miles of trails, woods, two wow. ponds to swim in. So kids just go and swim in the ponds wow. all summer long. Is it is it yeah. a gated community? No. So no, there's so, no gate. So why do you feel the kids are more safe there than they would be in like another environment? Yes, definitely they're more safe. There's not there's not much uh, foot traffic from uh, outsiders, for example. Yes. And they would be quite distinctive those outsiders if they were coming in because you pretty much know everybody, right? Well, they're guests. Yeah, they're guests all all the time. Come in, and there's also we have a learning uh, le learn center where we. It, non-profit educational organization uh, as well. So we do have classes and courses once in a while. We have students and uh, professors who bring their students here to teach courses and even workshops for architects and designers and other people who for sustainable building community. We have grants from federal and state governments to run these programs, educational programs, specifically for this reason to educate people who are interested in sustainable development because sustainable development there are many many layers to it from decision making to you know waste water electric electricity resources you know housing all these things have different aspects to it um, so it's pedestrianized for starters and obviously systemically different in many ways from from other places that you can live is there any waste created at all at this place sure yeah, we have. Yeah, definitely. But our recycling is much bigger than the waste. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and I was, we now, you know, I, I brought in idea of recycling, the package recycling for my business. We at that time needed uh, packaging recycling to pack things to ship to Amazon. So, and then everybody, you know, hundred households receive packages from Amazon every day. And there's bubble, you know, bubble wrap and there's peanuts and there's all kinds of stuff that in the box. They just fills them and uh, it goes to, to the trash tr traditionally now because bubble wrap is not recyclable even. You can't recycle. So we are reusing it. I created a station for reusing. How many people How many people are there in the eco village and do they live their lives in a different way or are they all just like normal you know, business people and just going about their lives but coming back to this place in the, at the end of the day? Is there a community? Is there a, a system of living that, which is different from normal society? Uh, I would say uh, I would say there are micro communities even without within the eco village, right? So there's there's a farming community. There are people who are uh, about land and agriculture and sustainable agriculture. There's other people who are more tech. Uh, we have. Are you familiar with uh, Cornell University? Uh, Cornell University is just 15 minutes. My ha my windows like overlooking Cornell University on the hill there. Uh, so major employer in our county, uh, biggest employer. So there's a lot of people who in the eco village who are either employed by Cornell or teach there. Uh, so they're, they're teachers, they're educators, uh, but they're also tech people who are now running the kind of tech part and uh, IT uh, of the eco village, but also they don't take so much part in the agricultural part. There are other people who are uh, more on social uh, front 
of development. And they uh, study sociocracy. Sociocracy is a type of self-governance. In fact, I invite you, if you're interested in that, we're going to have this major course in September uh, where we're going to re-educate or update ourselves on this form of government uh, called sociocracy. It's, it's called dynamic governance. It's a way for people to make decisions, organizations, organizations such as Ecovillage or corporations or any organization, large scale, how to be effective in making decisions. Because I was part of co-op before. I, have, I was part of like 12 co-ops at the time. And it's really difficult to make decisions, come to a conclusion, to make action and to take action. And to like, because you have so many people making decisions, so many, people, so many opinions to get through. It's like thick woods, like you can't even possibly. That's why I think Chinese companies are so effective because there's like, it is like March and they ask where and they say there and everybody goes. You know, in the democratic state, everybody has a voice, everybody has a mindset, democratic mindset or kind of like, you have everybody opinion matters and then you have so many opinions how do you make decisions critical decisions in a timely manner and so one of the ways is sociocracy it's it's another way of making decisions other than by majority because otherwise it's just vote and then if you have vote and you have 55 percent but then you have sometimes a large large part of the population that is that did not get their way and they have there's some re resistance or there's some uh, upset and maybe resentment. Um, how do you know which which way is right to go? So there's a way to integrate all those opinions into the processes and into making action, taking actions, uh, and everybody has a voice at the same time. It's called sociocracy. Uh, you could look it up. Yeah, join us in the course. It will be available. Yeah, I'll send you some information. Brilliant. So we're gonna be about 40 of us are going to be joining from the my my community. So we have three neighborhoods. Uh, first neighborhood was built in 91, 92. The second neighborhood was built uh, in 96, 97. And the third neighborhood where I live was built in 2014, 15. Or, yes, 14, 15. And that's where I live. Um, each neighborhood has 30 houses. Our neighborhood has big common house, like an apartment building as well. So with apartments is a 40, 40 units, 40 households. Altogether about maybe 300, 400 people. Um, everybody has, like I said, various backgrounds. There are, there are uh, therapists, there are, so it's, it's very diverse community. You have to get uh, vetted could, to get to go in there in the first place. How do yes, you do? Yes, okay. yes. You do in a, in a way that you invited to take part in the community life first, so you could see what you're part, getting into, because it's not for everyone. Not as not everybody's willing to listen to everybody's opinion respectfully. Uh, some people are not into that kind of thing. They want to get their way, uh, and this Ica Village would not be a place for somebody who's rock hard on their ways. And there's no my way or the highway. Uh, you got to have open mindset about and and be able to listen to other people and their opinions. Um, so after that, it's pretty much if you can afford to live here. It's also one of, it's not a cheap place. Even though we're trying to be as affordable as we can, we're still within the restrictions and framework of, you know, we have finances, we have responsibilities, we have insurances, we have payments, loans, and uh, it's not a cheap house to live in. Uh, by any means, right? So neighboring houses, but we also have facilities that are other places don't have. 
lands and lands and you know woods and trails and wow. ponds and berries and you know have a organic berry farm outside of my house uh, i could go pick every type of blueberry there's like 15 16 types of berries and there's a csa it's a csa community supported agriculture i don't know if you're familiar no. csa community supported agriculture it's a type of kind of a co-op but the idea is that you buy into this csa early in the season and then you're going to have uh part of the crop of a every week so you come and you pick up your share mm -hmm. you basically buy into the share of this uh, and then so it's easy for the farmer to get money when they need it but they, it's also uh, all the harvest is spread out and you get what's the season what's been just picked every every week uh, and it it goes on for like whatever 30 weeks 40 weeks and so you have a does yeah. any of this seem to you to sort of touch upon like the best parts of communist principles not that one not not the csa i because in the csa farmer makes decisions and it's very very clear who owns the property and who makes decisions and who, who runs the business it's a business uh, they, they operate uh, in kind of villages and nobody really owned anything that's that was the trouble uh with nobody owns there was a lot of slacking and very little motivation you can't motivate people to go and and harvest you know and work in the fields at the time at first they could soviet union really could motivate people because of the, of the idea and the early years but it was tough too there was a lot of propaganda and a lot of activity that we're not very proud of what soviets did uh, and how they've treated their own country and how their own Peasants. countrymen mm peasants and and uh, but there was idea there was an idea that was burnt into the mindset from the children's you know you're part of the you're part of the party you're part of the idea and that idea was to that the country comes first and individuality isn't really important but because they didn't have that ownership in practice they didn't have any pride over time in what they were doing is there, a, exactly. is there a constitution at this place that in the Seco village? Is there a, a set of edicts as bylaws. such? Bylaws, definitely. Okay. Definitely. Yeah, we have bylaws. We have rules and bylaws by which we, and that's one of the things too. So you, if you're becoming a member, you kind of have to sign the paper that you agree to all the decisions that you've been priorly made prior to you joining, because you have to accept what regulations, what kind of opinion, what rules have been already uh, established, and. Uh, and what, here's what, an interesting, what is the punishment? Uh, what, what do you, how do, how, so sorry, go on, please. <laughs> I don't know, but here's an interesting uh, kind of concept, economic concept too, that um, that could be somewhat um, relevant to the Soviet and communist idea of how the things were, could could be run, all right, so look, look. So there's an agreement by which we live, which is uh, every adult uh, spends two hours a week on social on community work community work could involve and you sign up for own, your own community work whatever you whatever circle you're interested in if you're a farmer if you like gardening you do i'm a maintenance guy i like building i'm a builder i'm a manufacturer so i like physical structures i i work with physical structure type things maintenance uh, building so kind of things like that other people are there's a lawyer he does legal things and there's accountants and they do accounting things and there's people who do they like organize organizing parties and they organize events it's for so the everybody does 
for the greater good, but everybody, so, social life, uh, building social, you know, uh, social life is called, right? So we have, everybody does what they want to do in their own kind of fields of interest, but you spend two hours uh, a week doing it. And, uh, and somebody does more. Some people who are retired, and there's some people who do have a lot more time, and they don't have small children, children like I do, and they, have, they do spend a lot more time on the eco-village. And, and I'm the beneficiary of all this labor and all this work. And for two, here's, about, here's the math. We have, for example, 100 adults in our neighborhood. And I spend two hours a week on my social on my community work and in return for my two hours i get 200 hours of labor i know exactly what you're saying yeah that's we are, no but there's like implications of that can you imagine the timeline and kind of like a trade that you can get wow. for two hours of your time you get 200 hours back of labor of diverse labor of all different kinds yeah. and uh and that could exponentially have exponential effects right because you have uh kind of a, uh, what's the stock, uh, right, it, it, it expands exponentially because there's a, a key accumulating effect mm -hmm. of, of the goods and services. Um, so economically speaking, I don't know of any other structure that will provide that kind of leverage. That's really fascinating. Uh, not, Network marketing, not, you know, Amazon, where's Amazon with that? How can you, <laughs> exactly. there's a time, you know, even Time Bank, there's Ithaca has Ithaca Dollar. In fact, Ithaca is pretty, uh, very progressive community, I have to say. Not, that's why I think Eco Village is doing so well in this town, in this eco, kind of, uh, in this community, because it's such a progressive town overall. Uh, very diverse community in general, very progressive. That's where w women w movement started, the vote, voting movement in the 19... So it was upstate New York, right here, uh, just 15, 20 minutes from here. All these historical sites where women were starting together, and and that's how changes were happening. You know, you could think about how that is separate from now. And there's now we have Black Lives Matter movement. How is that different from women need a right to vote? How is that different from you know, there's, another, there's always something to fight for and there's always something to stand up for. That's really interesting uh, to me that what you've just described in terms of putting two hours, you know, doing two hours of community work every every week, that is such an important pillar, obviously, of your community because it's creating a systemic change because you're changing people's mindset to for them to realize the importance and to be motivated by doing stuff for mm -hmm. other people. You know, because this is, I think, the reason why we're struggling so badly as a as a humankind this right now is it just comes down to greed really from the top from the bottom from everywhere we all care too much about ourselves and not enough about others could be i don't know <laughs> i think we're we're all um but it's such a beautiful way to do it i think it, because there's a motivating factor behind it isn't there as you say you put two <laughs> hours in you get 200 hours back you get you you do that and you realize and you see the changes every day mm. how neighborhood transforms i moved into the bear neighborhood i was the first household that moved into this house uh when other houses are still in construction and we had to like do it in phase we kind of had to sell now because we were also our own developer and our own builder we had a building manager but we had to like build and and sell houses to ourselves the whole thing about doing it wow is like, you built the house well the community built the houses 
but then with a community sold the house to me in the shares it's a co-op structure so basically i don't own the house i own the shares that are attached to my house so i own the shares of the co-op basically that are attached to my house and my house attached to the shares i guess so we have to live within the legal structures of new york state which is co-op would be the closest legal structure that would describe our kind of situation um, but it's a corporation. It's a le legally, we are a corporation, so we have our bylaws, and we have to operate as a corporation, pretty much. But corporations have so many faces that now you can also see. Oh, there's a corporation, and that's a corporation, and that's a and there's entity, and and the CSA is also a corporation. CSA, community supported agriculture farm, type of co-op, also a corporation. Um, so all these identities and I, I, ideas are kind of emerging and coexisting um, very, very well. Is there a desire to make changes externally as well, or are you basically just concerned with um, the eco-village itself, not sort of politics or life outside in terms of trying to change that systemically? We've had our educational nonprofit for 20 years now, I think, from the very, I think even first days. Um, and that's a major part of our commission is education. Through education, I think a lot of things are possible. Through my lifetime, I saw what it, what it did for me to be able to have these educational experiences in different places. And that's one of them. And when we have students that come here and could we could host them for a little while and they could see the lifestyle, uh, they could participate also in our little building projects and build you know a student group comes and we help and they build us a bus stop or a little cellar or like a, a little bridge or something else community work happens around that project and um, education happens too then they go back maybe they'll do something with this knowledge maybe they won't but they will at least there'll be an opportunity for them to kind of contrast the experiences and apply some knowledge and experience in their lives so I've had friends who came and visited and stayed with my other the house swap kind of situation where my friends came and stayed in, my, uh, in the eco-village and then they wanted to start their own eco-village when they left because this eco-village is too far from New York City. We're about five and a half hours from New York City. And my friends lived, wanted to stay closer to New York City. So they were establishing another different community closer to the city. Um, but it's so hard, so difficult to establish a new community. Uh, wow. Very, very difficult. It's fascinating. Do, um, you know, Americans to me seem completely fascinated with the idea of the cult. Do you ever get any suspicion around you guys? Is there any ever, ever any negative press or concern that maybe there's some sort of cultish aspects to the eco village? Uh, there's always opinions, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, there's there's a reputation too to uphold, and there's uh, sometimes it's not the best reputation that we want to have, and there's a lot of misunderstanding. Uh, if there's a tenant, for example, we also, people sometimes rent apartments and they rent houses and they rent rooms and students come in and they have a, a different kind of experience because they are a tenant uh, here and they live temporary and then they have maybe some kind of a disagreement or other things happen with the sound. They don't buy into it. They don't, they don't invest emotionally in it as much as people that's, who... That's true, but they also... Um, there could be other issues, uh, sound issues, respect issues, kind of courtesy issues, like boundaries, privacy issues. Uh, we do have a certain situation here. Like you cannot be obnoxiously loud uh, at different hours of time because there is respect to neighbors. And a lot of, a lot of people are uh, 
retired or close to retirement uh, because now they can spend their time working on the community. They've, they've had this idea. They've already had the life of trying to uh, accomplish and build, you know, companies or money or careers. And then they they saw that career path is just more of the work. You just create more work for yourself. It never really ends. Career path has no end. After retirement, sometimes you, you feel like you want to give back to community and create something that's more sustainable um, and more uh, enduring than just money or a career. Uh, something will for children, something that could be passed on to the generation and somebody something that could be improvement to the society. Uh, so we've got we've got diverse age ages here too. It sounds really interesting. I would love to come when next time I'm on the East Coast. You have an invitation. You, you have an open invitation as soon as uh, our guest rooms, all of our common houses, we have three common houses. Each neighborhood has a common house. A common house is a type of building that's open 24 seven and where we have some game rooms or playrooms or other things, common areas, commercial kitchen where we can gather. A lot of people can have meals together. We have events, uh, but also you have guest rooms. And guest rooms are for people who have came as guests to visit um, residents or sometimes arrangements. Other, other arrangements have been made with an educational nonprofit called Learn, Learn at Eco Village. And you have, so right now, because of COVID, guest rooms are closed uh, for visitors, uh, especially out of state. But as soon as they open, you have an invitation. You can stay up to a week. It's free. You could bring uh, your partner. And they, I think you're going to have a blast. You are a gentleman. I'm so interested. <laughs> we will, I'll give you a tour. We'll schedule things around uh, your visit that, that will fill your days with lots of Lots of fun things and educational things. What a waterfalls, what a waterfalls woods, everything. That's the thing that really interests me. I'm, I love nature, uh, love greenness. And it sounds to me like these are literally very green places as well. Lush, very lush. Yeah, green, thick and lush. And just so, yes, and greenery is just amazing. These hundred people in your particular complex, do you know everybody well? No, not everybody. And, and there's a quite there's new people coming in all the time and people are moving out all the time it's quite a lot uh quite a movement so i don't know i think 99 percent. i think i know everybody 95 percent of people i know everybody closely not so much yeah. um, but you make an effort think, you make an effort to yeah, assimilate yeah we kind of naturally naturally we have you know their parents know their parents because of the kids play together so I'm too busy with my family. Nobody really is trying to pull me into like their gardening projects because they know I'm too busy at home. Yeah. Uh, do you feel, but, would you say that this is the most content you've ever been since you've been living in the eco village? Oh yeah. I love it here. There's, I, there's no other place I'd love to go. My wife, however, is just the winters have become hard for her. <laughs> the, you know, upstate New York sometimes could have a half, harsh winter and, uh, and, and she's, she likes, uh, she likes to take a break from the hard winter once in a while. Well, dude, let's build an let's build an eco village in California. That's right. We should just go back. <laughs> uh, do you know if there are any that exist in California that you're impressed by or that you've heard of? I don't know. I don't know. I'm hmm. sure there are communities. 
intentional. I've literally haven't asked you any of the questions that I, I sent to you and that I've set out to ask. I know. You. When are we going to get started? Are you starting person? recording or not? What? Are we just in the prelude? Are you preluding? No, we're, you're just romancing. Yeah, you're just romancing, trying to find out what I'm. <laughs> Whether it's going to be worth recording yeah, exactly. or not. <laughs> this is still interview. <laughs> I was I was fascinated by the eco village. Pavel, our mutual friend, always speaks about you so glowingly because he says you're just a fascinating soul. The other thing which I'm absolutely fascinated by is your avatar. Oh, Tantrique. We oui. can you tell me something about that? Um, what is the purpose of it? How did it come about? What form does it take? Avatar. So uh, some, sometimes it's easy for me to talk about some things uh, in a comical way, in a non-serious way. And uh, you see, uh, if I had the moustache, right, we, so it would be very helpful to me to <laughs> sound more French. So this is a persona that you've developed over for how long? Uh, it, it's, a new, it's a new thing. It's, uh, Avatar, Tantrique, Artrigno, Tantrique, oui. Uh, has been around for about six months uh, since the COVID started. Okay, so because uh, Victor could not go to work anymore and uh, he was quite bored and he did not know how to come about, come out of his own closet and talk about things that he needed to talk about, which is art. Such as? Such as art and uh, ideas of the self. Uh, Victor went inwardly and he could not find and all the identities that Victor was as a father, as a business, entrepreneur, as a neighbor. Uh, so there are so many layers to the personality uh, that where is the true Victor in, in all of that? Uh, I look into my body and there's a great body, I love it, uh, healthy, uh, you know, some people are pri pri proud that they are maybe one percent of the wealthiest Americans, and I am maybe the one percent of the healthiest Americans uh, <laughs> on the other side of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was just uh, it, it would be weird, I think, to all of a sudden uh, a guy who was uh, into business and into his family life all of a sudden come out as an artist. Uh, so Victor is not an artist. We Tantric is artist, uh, and okay. so Tantric has new experiences and things to talk about, and uh, transcendent experiences that we can uh, we can kind of talk about. So that that's what the Tantric was about, and it was also a play um, to bring out and talk. Uh, to people so without taking things more seriously. Who do you think you're interviewing here, Oliver? Do you think you're interviewing Victor or Tantrik? Who is really, who is more real to you? I need to get to know Tantrik a little bit better, to be honest, before I can, okay. before I can give you a, a, an informed answer. <laughs> right, right. So experiences are, uh, right, so experience matters. Uh, Victor seems to me to be a very sort of unconventional and liberated character, but you were, but Victor obviously still felt that he was living even at the eco village within quite strict conventions that he couldn't, and because he's a father, and because you know of all these different social conventions that he couldn't express himself through Victor and had to do it as a different persona. We all wear different hats. We. Uh, so this is a hat that I wear today, and Tantrik may be not around, I maybe not need the Tantrik to come around and be the spokesman for the self. 
for very long because even that identity will have to fall away. I had other identities uh, as a Bernie man community and a Berner, uh, there was Tsar, I was a Russian Tsar, we, and I had a different kind of persona, but I still went out and created art and uh, I was accepted as, a, as an artist with my community. And now it's a kind of a different uh, phase with four children and for so many responsibilities. Where am I gonna have time? Victor did not have time to be an artist. Uh, so it was a quick thing that I think uh, we also operate, it kind of adds, uh, throws a little thing to, uh, into the conversation to kind of really to understand we are always dealing with personalities and their identities. We don't really uh, dealing with people self to self. Um, the ignorance that I was talking about, Victor was talking about earlier, uh, uh, ignorance about knowing the true self uh, is covered by the, all the different identities that we carry around. Russian, we talked about Russian and Kazakhstan and American, all these identities. Tantric is another name. America, Tantric, all the same. Name and form, name and form. All reality around you is name and form, nothing else. We don't, we don't. There's this, yeah. There is this wonderful writer called Alan de Botton. I don't know if you've heard of him. He's a philosopher and a psychologist and just a great, great guy. He's written lots of different books. One of them is called How Proust Can Change Your Life. And it was basically a Proust reader. So it's basically a, a sort of biography of Proust and some of his, um, some of the tenets of his existence and some of the sort of rudiments of his beliefs and philosophies. And one of the, one of the best, um, the things I remember most from it is he said Proust used to say basically as a child if you run around naked screaming you're seen as a happy child if you do that as an adult you're locked up so it's the idea that play the idea of play being in some way wrong as you get older as all these social conventions saddle your world and that you become you, the things that you enjoy and that are so natural and healthy as a child are seen as unnatural and unhealthy do you think that purpose or part of the purpose of, of Tantric is for your own play? And, you know, what are the other purposes of it? Everything is play, of course. But we're not really of allowed course. to play so much as adults, are we? No, oh, everything. A business is a, an art medium. Uh, it's all a play. There's nothing really under control. Uh, all of this is just a fundamentally, when you start accepting it as a play and you don't really own the outcome of anything, any action, you don't really can predict the outcome. You can only do something that you think you're gonna, and the result is gonna be something different. I worked with a company called. Uh, Who did Victor or Tantric? Victor, Victor okay. did. Okay. Victor <laughs> had an idea that it was gonna be a wonderful, great uh, future that he's gonna build with uh, his uh, partners, uh, and it turned out completely different mm. from what Victor thought was gonna be. So we can approach. A lot of things as a, as a game and less uh, attached to the outcome and more, uh, more uh, because life lives through us. We allow our, ourselves to kind of play out through the, uh, the forces of nature that, that where we are uh, should come out on their own. Uh, and if they're not obstructed, I think there will be a lot more 
I'm switching to another accent already. You see how confusing? I don't know even know if we have, uh, maybe not, maybe it's just me. <laughs> uh, so I definitely, I accept, uh, accept the play. What is Tantri going to do in his life? Is he going, does he plan to perform? Uh, do you plan to perform? I mean, what's going to be, is he going to be a vehicle for some kind of political or philosophical thought? Is there going to be a, are you going to emanate your, your vibe out into the world or is it just for you, just, just for you to play and to, to be, you know, uh, to be tantric whenever you, you feel that you need to do that? I hope, I hope uh, people will realize that, that our friends and uh, viewers, uh, when they come and visit me on the Facebook or uh, when I do the presentation on YouTube, uh, because I like to dress up, so it makes, uh, on the podcast, you can't really see the, my beautiful mustache and, uh, and the persona behind <laughs> the, the beautiful voice uh, that they could relate where, where are they hiding their tantric. Uh, tantric is really, uh, in English, tantric. Tantric. Uh, we, so uh, some people ask me. <laughs> Slow <sorry>. sex. <laughs> Oh, that's what it is? <laughs> well, tantric sex, tantric sex is sort of spreading out, you know, elongating the sexual experience so that the orgasm lasts for hours. That's my understanding of it. Understanding of energy. So we, so tantric sex uh, is, is the kind of sex, mindful sex, where you're implementing energy. So tantric, it's a force, right? It's a force of nature. Tantric is really is about power and a different kind of, it's not, not a visual, it's not physical, non-physical kind of power, non-physical energy, tantric power. And uh, it, it dips into our true nature, what is really behind the ideas, behind the identities. The power, the tantric power that makes a human body alive and propels the evolution and propels your cells in your body to change and how you derive energy energy from the oxygen that you're breathing in you have no idea how you're doing it you don't know how your heart is beating all the processes that are happening in your body oliver does not control any of them right and oliver is an identity oliver is an idea idea right just like america is an idea just like russia is an idea russian culture all these things ideas but underneath all that if we take those things off we have some power that is behind it and we're also observing this kind of environment. Um, so we play with name and form, but let's not confuse ourselves with the name and form. Okay? So Tantrik is about to come out and play with name and form, and the art that I create is also is about to pointing something, something like that nature. So we are actually the mirror. We are the mirror, and we are the reflection that's in there. Uh, Rumi's quote. So I'd like to point our attention to that nature of ourselves so we can pa go past ideas of identities and separation. Uh, I mentioned early in our conversation where the idea of separation and idea of us and them uh, creates the mindset for the whole country, for the people, how to relate to themselves and to the world. But if you really, on the level of personality, can understand that you are not your idea. You are not, uh, I'm not tantric, right? We, uh, Victor, 
and I'm not even Victor either, because Victor and Tantric are same thing. It's ideas. Both of them are ideas. That's the confusion. Masks. Masks. You can mask their hats. Yeah, they're ideas. They are uh, identities. Tantric is an identity. Mm-hmm. Victor is the same kind of identity. Only Victor has more history and social right. conditioning. And Victor has four kids. And Tantric is a young identity that has other ideas and, and mustache. And Victor doesn't have mustache. Uh, but they're ideas. If you relate mm-hmm. to ideas and idea. and But nature, where is the nature in those two ideas? None of them. Really. So we're taking a step back. Who is really behind the, the whole who's riding this bus, you know, uh, who's driving it. And we, that's the kind of uh, self-discovery process that was used. And who is driving it? Well, nobody's really, forces of nature are driving it. We are observing it. Uh, so the, the real self is- It's just all random. Well, well, random or not, but laws of nature are not random. Uh, laws of nature are very specific. Right, sure. And so laws of nature are very precise and they are, we, we don't, we don't want to change it. Like, COVID is going to do its own thing, how the laws of nature will will dictate it. And there's a our DNA, our social condition, all these, uh, uh, you know, father program. I, I have a, I'm a father of four children. So there's a kind of a, a program that's built into me as a father that I, as, as a partner, as a husband, I have another program that I, I like to satisfy my wife and make her happy in certain ways. Uh, that's a program because I love her. And that's kind of a force of nature that's built into, but it's not Victor. It's there by itself. I'm a father, and so I have four. And so that program runs through me. It runs through Victor, and it plays out in certain ways. I'm a neighbor in a community of a village, and so that's going to playing out in certain ways. Uh, and Tantrique has another identity, and other things will come out of that uh, as a game, as a play. Uh, <laughs> Mm. And uh, we so it, it helps to separate those things because then you have less confusion and less uh, um, you're less worried about things that are right or not right or should it be or should be or who's doing what and and trying to figure out what Amazon is doing and why are they doing it and whether it's good for the world or bad for the world <laughs> so, because you could be trying to figure out yeah. for, from the point of your identity uh, and you don't know your ass from the hole in the ground right. What are we trying to do? Because we don't, we don't know the laws of, so we're trying, we're very, it's like trying to see the world through a very tiny crack in the wall. Uh, so what, what should we be trying to do? Or should we not be trying to do anything? Should we just be being? I, I think self-discovery process helps to, at least it, it, it breaks down false identifications that create conflict. One of the major things in your questions was to what's what what's the biggest things that humanity facing uh, challenge and the challenges I think is conflict and conflict is not just country against country but it starts with internal conflict should I do it should I not do it what should I be doing it now did they, are they doing it right who's who's Trump and why is he doing that way and is that is that gonna be good for our country how dare he do this and all that stuff uh, lots of conflict and if we have uh, it's, it's it's I don't know what it's like to be in the state of, of a holy man, the state of mind of a holy man, and see the world through the state of mind. Would I see Benstand man as a problem? Benstand man, I loved your your uh, your oh, thank you your, your podcast, uh, but it's an idea also. Like we're seeing, 
an identity, the bandstand man, and we're trying to solve the things on the level of identity of it. But he's beyond all that. He or she is not, there's not even, he, he's in an idea. But it's the mindset that views the world, that views the neighbor, that views the country, that views the leader, that determines your outlook in life and what you think is right or wrong. And that's when internal conflicts comes in. Should I be doing this? Should I not be helping him? Should I, you know, is he in the right place? Does he need help? Is he mentally ill? Is that a good thing that he's here? Is that a bad thing? Is, should be in a better situation? Should I be trying to do something uh, mental? All these mental things, they come and they run these things and your mind will run these things endlessly. Uh, but if you separate yourself from the mind and you're going to see that yourself as a viewer, as an observer of this mm. whole game and play and Tantrik and Victor and Oliver and Ben Stanman, all these are plays, plays of form and name are just name, you know, you're going to get more of an enlightened view of the world and everything is in the right place and there is no conflict. Because... Does that sort of feed into the idea of the oneness as well? Oneness, of course we are the one. That's the whole unity. Okay? Exactly. Because there is nothing... We're different on the level of name and form. Where the difference is on the name and form. You look different than me, and you sound differently than me, and so you must be different. But that's only on superficial level. And that's not who you are, because you're not Oliver, and I'm not Victor, and I'm not my body, and I'm not my mustache. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, right? We so... Yeah. <laughs> but I know that there's unity somewhere, but we got to, like, it takes takes layers and peeling off that onion is difficult. But then, then I could come out and let's seize my situation in the in immigration cell as not a problem. Because there's no problem with anything. It's really beautiful what you're expressing. And it, it took me time to, to, um, to sort of crystallize my own head where you're going with it. But now I sort of understand. And, that you, you know, the, uni the term unity, it just resonates so much. And we're so, we're not, we're not unified at this point in time, are we? We're not unified because we see a self separate. Yes. The separa idea of separation comes from the first idea of I. Who's separate? There's I and there's not I, the world. Mm. I yep. and the world. There's Russians and there's non-Russians. And it's literally it's the opposite in, the, in that sort of convention, in those sorts right. of and semantics. Then, so then, uh, then we try to figure out, and then the whole world becomes a problem, and, there's a, and then you have separating divisions, and you try to barriers, and all the conflict comes in after that because you first created your separation between you yourself as your nature with other people uh, others as nature and you call them men women you know other kinds of identities that you can name now and uh so don't is a is a really great kind of a conversation piece but also uh persona to speak for home about the true self because he's not a true self himself yeah. He's an identity that can point your direction. It's like a finger pointing to the moon. Every uh, spiritual teacher, I think, in uh, non-duality uh, teachings, non-duality tradition, uh, Sufi, Buddhist, uh, Hindu, uh, name it, you know, would kind of point to that unity from on that level. But it all, always ends with not finding the one who suffers. Buddhist were great, you know, Buddha sold, uh, you know, he was a great marketer uh, of his uh, ideas because he said, we'll end suffering. Well, that suffering is a good idea, but what, at the end of, end of suffering, what do you find? How do you end suffering? By not being able to find the one who suffers. 
that's the idea because it wasn't there in the first place. Mm. Right. <laughs> um, I know. So it's a kind of so that hike is good about. Yeah. You know, why? Why not? Victor doesn't want to talk about this. Who? I don't talk about these things with my friends, my family. Oh gosh, they don't. Nobody interested in that because there's nothing to gain. Yeah. One thing about it, you don't have anything to gain about from knowing about your true self. There's no benefit, no bonus. Um, but it eliminates conflict. Yeah, it's really inner conflict and outer conflict. So interesting. And but there's no no there's no others there's no other value. You cannot better get become a better person because there is no person to become better. <laughs> I get, you become a you be you and also you actually see yourself. Also, that speaks movie. to like the the competitive nature of the world. You know, like I think the idea of the oneness is the most comforting and reassuring idea that we're all the same. So there's no need to try and be better than that person exactly. because we're we're all the same thing. And if we could it's only all the view, same thing. if we could only all view the world through that prism then it would be a far cooler place, right? <laughs> that would be an enlightened view, yeah. pretty much. That's how holy people, holy men and women see the world. They don't see the idea of separation that way, of right and wrong in such, in such a rigid ways. It's all continuous. And the names of, name and form are different. You know, we could, on a level of the relativity, like a relative world, things in the studio, are physical and they are rigid uh, and they all have different shapes but it's a manifestation of one reality uh, you know uh, this will fall apart this is a table of elements behind me and it will all go back to being table of elements after it's being trashed and uh, you know hundred years later it'll be the same table of elements in a different form mm -hmm. uh, some other things will come into existence in a different form out of that uh, as well as they recycle. That's what the recycling is about. I've taken up so much of your time and I could literally talk for 10 hours to you because you're a fascinating and beautiful man. Uh, but I want to ask you, who inspires you and why? It could be anybody. that doesn't have to be the most inspiring person you've ever met, but tell me somebody that you really believe is, you know, is just having a great positive effect on the world. Ooh. Uh, personalities. Uh, it contradicts what we've just been talking about to degree because you're going to talk about an identity. Well, well, I would say, but those people, yeah, so the people's and personalities, right? So you, I see what you're saying, but the personalities uh, that, that live as forces of nature, that allowed themselves to right. Gandhi, he put the Gandhi aside. Any holy man and person put the personality idea of a person, of idea of identity with certain a cast and the cast and the, uh, your role of role in the your role in society your creed your nationality put that aside and live a life as a force of nature to bring about the change that is and practice that and practice that and practice that gandhi luther king you know you know Every holy person you know you could name from in any tradition have done this because they became a holy because they became a force of nature for the good of humanity. Uh, how did they do that? They didn't try to do it as like as as themselves as because if there's so many things that stop a personality because a personality has enemies that they have they have things to that stop them they have flaws and they have weaknesses and they have. Uh, 
background things uh, that are holding them back. But if you're none of those things, then none of those things can affect you and stop you and derive you. So you just allow, allow that certain things come into your life in the same way and then it becomes a synergy of tantric. Tantric power, who can touch it? You can't touch it, you can't put your finger on it, you can't even control it. The tantric powers, you think you're kind of controlling the tantric sex, but you're not really even putting your hands on the person. You could do it remotely and having the other person having an orgasm. Are you really controlling the energy? Do you know how it runs through what meridians, through what channels, mm. through what chakras? Yeah. Are they even chakras? Or are they just called chakras? You know, <laughs> and it's kind of like that. When you become a powerful uh, channel for those things to just go through your life and then splash into the life of others with a positive change, positive or not positive, something like that. that's, that's what's inspiring. Wow, that is such a brilliant answer. Such a great answer. And uh, what's the strangest thing you've ever seen? Oh, strangest thing. I thought of that. And I think it's, you know how you close your eyes? You can close your eyes and you can wave your hand in front of your eyes, your palm of your hand like this. And you could see almost a shadow of the hand moving. Um, it's... You could do that also with absolute, no, you could kind of just say, it, oh, I see the, because there's a light. And so there's a, you almost see like a shadow of the hand, maybe through your eyelids. You could say that maybe that's, that's what you're seeing. But if you do this in a completely dark room where there's no light to, to have, ref, to reflect from your hand and not no light to abstract that you could, your hand could abstract from your eyelids, you could still see the phantom hand moving in front of your face. How is that possible? With what do we see? If your eyes are closed, you're in absolutely darkest room, even with your eyes open, you wouldn't be able to see your hand. But if you close your eyes, you could still see your hand moving just like you did right now. And more than that, you could see other parts of your body as well. With the, so your vision, the strangest thing for me that I don't even see with my eyes, strangest things that I could see Fascinating. It because the attention and the viewing is not in your eyeballs the awareness is outside of our body you could see that and you could practice it and this is the strangest thing but it's all has always been there and we are we're wow. living like lives like it's never like it's not even part of our lives <laughs> like we have to keep our eyes open and relate relate to the world and physical reality and the solid and all that and with all the ideas of separation but that's fascinating that's the unity because it's the yeah. Consciousness that sees itself. Okay, I'm looking at a John Lennon picture behind you right now. Do you think I see that John Lennon picture in the same way that you view that John Lennon picture? Or do you think we're seeing completely different things, but like my version of blue is different to your version of blue, but we both call it blue? Absolutely. So like we're both seeing something completely different based on the perception and the way that our mind works. Exactly. We see that person. We see just like with what I said, you close your eyes, you can see it with your eyes closed. You could close your... You could look at the Lennon, close your eyes, you can still see him. You will see him. Is it the wrong? Is it a different Lennon? Is it the new? Is it a new Lennon? Is it. Um, yeah. You're seeing not just the physical manifestation of it, but also because you know it's light reflecting, because you're actually seeing pixels on your screen because we're in a Zoom call. And if I'm looking, I'm also seeing the zoom, but it's on my screen. So it's not even Lennon. You're seeing pixelization that construct the picture of something that your brain mm -hmm. 
builds out as an image of a personality, of identity. All these things happen in your brain absolutely automatically, in your mind. Your mind does this thing. It constructs ideas and identities just like that because you're not really looking at Lennon. It's just bluish. Child would come in here. If anybody, any child, my child under three years old, he would not see Lennon at all. He would just see blurry colors, blurry colors with no idea if it's even a man or, or what. But we are trained mind and now we've been conditioned so much by home in so many decades of living in this society that we are identifying everything as not ourselves. There's I and then there's Lennon. There's I and there's Tantrik. There's I and there's Victor. There's I and Oliver. There's Americans and there's Russians and there's all of them. And there's Trump. So you have a world of separation and I like that's how you good luck and now you're ready to suffer. <laughs> uh, and then try to find conflicts with everything else that doesn't fit into the whatever frames. <laughs> but it's your mind that constructs the Lennon through the seeing the pixels on your screen that you think that it's Lennon. Otherwise, it's just a blurb of light or, you know, color. Wow. So much to ruminate upon. And I just feel like, you know, we're at the tip of the iceberg. Like, we, we so have to have a part two. Oh, yeah, we will. Sure will. I, I'm going to let you have some peace at this point in time, but it's been such a fascinating conversation. I've just realized the clock's just ticked past two hours. So I thank you so much for your time, sir. And um, it's just been so illuminating for me to speak to you. I didn't know what to expect, but you've exceeded all expectations. Thank you. Thank you, Oliver. <sighs> the Natural High. Follow us on Twitter at Natural High Club or go straight to the website thenaturalhighclub.com. And remember to subscribe to the Natural High podcast through whichever platform you're listening to get every new pod straight to your phone. <laughs>